I'm down the back of my local supermarket, one of the big two, and I'm standing in front of a huge wall of eggs. It's about, I would say, a four metre stretch with five shelves high of eggs. We've got cage-free, barn-laid, farm-fresh, cage-free, free-range, lots of different free-range. There's naturally enriched free-range, there's organic. You can get 18 packs, you can get six packs. There's a lot to choose from and a key to decode it all up above the fridge. It's kind of overwhelming, to be honest. Right now there are about half a dozen people standing around the egg area, but they're all looking confused. They're standing there, they're not going for their regular brand, they're, they're checking, they're looking, they're opening, they're um, doing what I do, I think, and they're probably checking the use-by date to make sure they get good bang for their buck. There are loads of factors at play when we choose the eggs we eat. Price, freshness, those pretty pictures on the box. I never take any time to really look at it. I just go straight from the free range brand that I know and I go. But now I'm looking at all of the options and thinking, okay, what does all this mean? What's cage free? What's barn laid? What's actually the difference between barn laid and free range? Because they go back into the barn to lay their eggs. So I need to find out what the real difference is between all these different egg labels. I'm Wendy Hargraves. This is The Good Egg, a podcast about where your eggs come from. More and more, we're making egg purchasing decisions based on how we feel about the living conditions of the hens that laid them. And egg farmers have responded with choice. If animal welfare is important to you, there's a product on that huge wall of eggs just for you. But the top of the carton doesn't always tell the full story. Those green fields and frolicking hens aren't the whole picture. In this series by Australian Eggs, we'll visit farms around the country and learn about the complex systems that keep the egg-laying chooks healthy and productive. And we're starting with hen behaviour. The way hens behave day to day can tell us a lot about their welfare. Hi, so welcome to Syro. This is the Armadale site, the Chiswick Laboratory. There are multiple Syro sites around the country, but this is um, one of the largest rural sites where we do a lot of agricultural research. My name is Dana Campbell and I am a research scientist working at Syro in Armadale. If you want to know about the life of a hen, Dana Campbell is a font of chook knowledge. I've been here for about five years now and I have a strong interest in laying hens and their behaviour and welfare. So I have been looking at individual differences in laying hens um, and why they range and how this impacts them. First things first, those systems... All the different types of eggs you can get at the supermarket. If you haven't spent a long time reading your egg carton lately, here's what you need to know. So there are a lot of different housing systems that are used for laying hens. In general, we have cage systems, which are indoors, and the hens are kept in small groups. These cages are in big temperature-controlled sheds, 
with large cages stacked up on top of each other, like a big Japanese pod hotel. Each cage has a small group of chickens inside. Cages might range in size from just under a couple of metres squared right up to 100 metres squared. And then you have barn or aviary systems. So these are, again, they're indoor systems, but they have perches or other structures in them. In barn systems, there are no cages. Birds are free to move around the inside of a large shed. And the hens are kept in much larger groups and they have a larger space available to them. These barns, or aviaries, can look the same as the barns where free-range hens live. But chooks in the barn system have no access to the outdoors. And then you have free-range systems. All free-range systems have an indoor component. Chickens need a place to eat, to sleep, to be protected from the elements. So whether that includes an aviary system within the indoor shed, but then the birds also have the option for outdoor access, and that is what makes it different to the other systems that the birds can go outside or inside as they choose. Dana has spent a lot of time with chickens. I do find them very fascinating birds to work with. But how do we know if a chook is actually happy? If you think about whether a person is happy or not, there's multiple things that could indicate whether they are. So whether you you talk to them or you look at what they're doing, you ask them a lot of questions, is equally complicated for a chicken. It's just hard because we can't talk to them. How do we measure a hen's well-being? How can we tell if she's living a good life? So we do look at their behaviours, but then we also... We try to look at physiological markers, but at this point there's no you know, single marker that will tell you, yes, that chicken is happy or in a positive state or not. So we do look for markers that can indicate they might be in a negative state, such as their levels of stress hormones. Scientists use that combo of behaviours and physiological markers to assess whether hens are in a positive or a negative state. Dana and her colleagues at the CSIRO are doing a lot of research on the different types of hen housing systems and how the hens respond to them. And how it affects their behaviour and their welfare. So how do scientists measure hen happiness? They start by trying to figure out how most hens act to get a grip on normal hen behaviour. And so you'll see that even the domesticated hens, they've been domesticated for a long period of time, but they're still exhibiting similar behavioural repertoires. And so they, they like to scratch and forage around in the dirt. They will dust bathe, they preen, they stretch and flap their wings, they will roost on perches, they use nest boxes. And so all of these are behaviours that we would expect to see with the chickens. And so we look at the different quantities that they may or may not display, depending on the type of system that they're in. And they look at the negative stuff too. If there are changes, then that can cause stress to the bird. There's also environmental factors that we might not be able to perceive that do affect them. Um, Loud noises can stress the birds, Um, sometimes in, in large groups. They can, you know, develop these abnormal behaviours. We don't know the exact reason that they are developing, but they can sometimes be more prevalent in large groups. So whether it's, you know, conflict between individual birds that causes stress. So looking at these behaviours, is there an egg farming system that's best for hens? I think it's probably 
more complex than people think. Um, so certainly a, a free range system, it gives that option for what we might think is a, a more natural life because they do have that outdoor access. But then you find there's quite a number of chickens that prefer not to go outside, even though they have that option. But there's probably a lot of different situations where that chicken could be satisfied. Probably not just one type of system or one type of management strategy. Kinross has farms all over central Victoria, but the one we visit is a free-range farm about two hours' drive north of Melbourne. I can see a huge flock of hens scratching around in the dirt. And they seem like happy chooks, but who knows? I know it's a meaningless question, but I ask it anyway. What is a happy hen? Have a look. <laughs> that's, that's one of our oldest flocks in Euroa at the minute. So and how old are these ladies? Oh, they're pushing 60, you know, into the 60s. And yeah, you can have a look how happy they are because they're fully feathered. What do you mean by 60s? Well, 60 weeks, sort of, over 60, 60 weeks. weeks. Into the 60 weeks, right, yeah, eh? That's that's old for a, a hen. Yeah, but you can just tell by the look of them. And also yep. the noise. Yeah. You can, you can hear that there's no distressed behaviour in their vocal patterns. They're not crying out. They're not panting a lot. The colour of their combs. You know, they've got really good feather cover. I'm standing with Reuben Dare, regional manager at Kinross, and his farm manager, Brian Smith. We're at the edge of a free-range enclosure, right near the fence, under a big gum tree. Well, in our laying environment, we have flat deck, which we're standing out in front of at the moment, which is a barn-style system with a slatted floor and an internal scratching area. And some of our sheds with that setup have an external scratching area as well, which is called a winter garden, which allows the birds to scratch all year round, even if the, there's inclement weather, and they can venture outside of the shed if they choose to. These barns are designed to work as both free-range or barn-laid. At the moment, the doors are open and it's operating as a free-range farm. And around the edge of the barn, we can see hundreds of chooks. They are so chilled out right now. They've got... Some of them are having a little sit. They're having a little scratch. They're enjoying the sunshine. Most of them are staying in the shade. And I think that's something that we city slickers have a bit of trouble with, that chickens really do like to stay inside. That's correct. I mean, if you, if you go to any free-range system on any day, regardless of whether it's boutique 600-bird flock or an 18,000-bird shed, unless the conditions are ideal externally, the environment inside, if you think about it from the bird's perspective, that's where their nesting area is, that's where their perching area is, it's where their food is, it's where their water is, and they are not exposed to anything in there, they feel safe. As soon as they step outside here, they're exposed to the sun, they're exposed to the wind, they're exposed to birds of prey, other predators like foxes, wild dogs, cats. So unless the conditions are ideal, you'll tend to see on any system the birds will migrate towards the shed because that's where they feel comfortable. This is one of many surprises now that I'm out on these egg farms. I always look at the stocking density of the farms on my egg cartons and here I am looking at the empty hectares into the distance while hundreds of hens choose to huddle in together. So you're at a dinner party and there's someone there who insists that any mass-produced egg 
is somehow tainted because it's mass produced and not, you know, from a little bucolic farm somewhere where there's a few hundred chooks running around where you can get your fresh eggs. How do you counter that view that the small free-range farm is, is better than a big shed like this with tens of thousands of chickens in it? Well, the first question I'll ask them is, can they define welfare? Because most people can't. Can you define welfare? I think this is what I've been trying to get at with that happy hen question. Defining welfare is complex. It's much simpler to think of animals as either happy or sad. And it's changed over time as our values as a society have changed. If we go back, the very first notion of animal welfare, been around for a long time, was in the context of prevention of cruelty. So it was the hard-edged, the hard-end, I guess, of a spectrum of, of animal welfare. This is Dr Hugh Miller. I'm a veterinarian. I spent most of my career to this point within government for quite a few years as the Chief Veterinary Officer for Victoria. He spent a lot of time thinking about welfare. As Chief Vet, it was basically his job to make sure Victoria's animal welfare laws and regulations matched up with the community's values and the scientific reality of farming. He's seen these changes up close. So the the first legislation in many countries, it's still enduring, was focused on preventing cruelty. So that was about preventing or avoiding uh, unnecessary pain and suffering, that sort of thing. So it it was looking at risks to welfare and preventing those risks or minimising them. That started to change because animal welfare, and most people's feelings about it, was that it should be more than just preventing harm or preventing the negative side of an animal's state or well-being. Things started to change in the early 1990s when something called the Five Freedoms of Animal Welfare gained traction. And this is at a time when, again, probably animal welfare was typically looked at in terms of prevention of cruelty. And the Five Freedoms, what was a game changer was that and I mean, to give examples, some of the freedoms was that an animal should be free from, from disease or from pain or from harm, these sort of things. Freedom from hunger and thirst, from discomfort, freedom from fear and distress. But the fifth freedom, which was brand new and opened up real challenges, was that an animal should be free to express innate or natural behaviours. Sounds terrific, but... What's an innate or a natural behaviour? Particularly, what's an innate or a natural behaviour which, if denied, causes a, a negative state in an animal? The five freedoms opened up a whole new approach to animal welfare. And that fifth freedom, the freedom to express natural behaviours, has shaped how we think about animal welfare today. Which is that there's... It's not just freedom from harm, but there should be some positive experiences as well. So we've gone from giving farm animals a life free from cruelty and harm to a life worth living. So a much broader assessment now is 
what's called affected states or emotions or experiences. And the concept here is that there are positive states and negative ones, and that an animal's welfare at any particular time is the outcome of a balance of those two things. So there could be some negative influences, but also a whole bunch of positive ones. And on balance, you could say that's an acceptable state of welfare. So it's increasingly, I think, and I think society's values are starting to reflect this. People want to think that when we use animals in agriculture or in whatever pursuit, that they're getting some positive experiences as well. So you're talking about this idea that animals should be free to express natural behaviours. The whole question of behaviour and natural behaviours in animals, particularly farm animals that have been farmed and increasingly intensively farmed, that's the real hot spot. It gets back to the challenge Dana Campbell explained, how to measure positive states and define natural behaviours. Perhaps looking at it from a scientific point of view, those first four freedoms you know, basically measurable things. But freedom to express a natural behaviour is a much harder thing to define. It's a much harder thing to study. Dana has spent a lot of hours watching these birds, defining natural hen behaviour by observing them in all sorts of different situations. So we'd be looking at the different resources that are provided, and by that we mean whether they do have an outdoor range or whether they have perches or whether they have nest boxes. And then we look at how much do the hens utilise them and then how does that affect what they do during the day. They are very motivated to lay in a nest box. So there's quite a lot of research that's been done over a number of years showing that if you give a chicken a choice between a nest box or not, then they will prefer to lay within a nest. But Dana also keeps a keen eye on abnormal behaviours across the different farming systems. Behaviours that would be abnormal or unwanted. And so this might be such as excessive feather pecking, or perhaps if a hen is is not foraging that much or has not dust bathed in a while or is not using the perches, then we would say that these are abnormal behaviours and in large quantities, then they can be detrimental to the birds. Feather pecking is one of those behaviours that tells you a lot about the welfare of hens. Feather pecking is quite complex. There are different types. So birds will sort of gently peck at each other and that is not so much of a problem, whether they're just, um, you know, exploring and it's gentle. It doesn't remove any feathers. It doesn't hurt the other bird. But it's not always gentle. And this is an unwanted behaviour and this does lead to a lot of health problems. And so this is when birds will peck quite forcefully at another and they will often remove feathers. And sometimes this can extend to them actually pecking at the skin of the other bird and leading to bleeding and eventually cannibalism in the birds and and death. So that is a behaviour that is unwanted. It can be prevented in multiple different ways, whether it's management into or if it's um, a different diet or a different type of resource that you're providing. It is complex. There's pros and cons of every system and it's hard to make a choice on which one is the best or not. And I do think that people's values probably do impact how they then view these systems. And it gets very much back to this whole, the fact that really animal welfare is strongly a values-based 
space. For Hugh Miller, the real challenge is turning those shifting public values into policy. It's made it extremely challenging. Public policy, when it was about prevention of cruelty, was pretty straightforward. I mean, cruelty is relatively easy to define in terms of you know, pain and suffering and things that you should, shouldn't do. Once you start to move into this broader notion of looking at positive and negative experiences or emotions in animals to produce a state of welfare, it gets a lot trickier from a public policy point of view. And this has created a real tension because a lot of people have, have thought, well, why don't we have these standards for animal production that you know, ensure all these positive experiences are in play and not just uh, protection of negative ones. But that's a very hard thing to define in public policy point of view. So where we've got to, um, a, lot of, a lot of countries are the same, but Australia is probably well ahead, is looking at, in a public policy sense, at having standards which are minimum mandatory standards which all in an industry or all animal owners have to comply with but then also guidelines which set out probably best practice and which give, in a sense, a, uh, you know, some strong signals about a pathway to, for continuous improvement. But the tension is, what's a standard, mandatory, and what's a guideline? So the public policy space has got no easier, that's for sure, as these paradigms around animal welfare have evolved. Many of us are uncomfortable with large-scale egg farming but we're eating more eggs now than we ever have before. Australian egg production increased by 54% over the last 10 years to meet this increasing demand. With a highly urbanised society that we have, particularly in Australia, I think most people's understanding or knowledge of uh, farming systems and animal production systems is um, people are under-informed. In fact, in many cases, they're ill-informed. Dana Campbell says any egg production system comes with trade-offs. So where one housing system might allow the hens to exhibit a lot more behaviours, maybe that housing system also brings a lot more health risks to it. So depending on the aspect that perhaps you as a person place most value on might then influence your thoughts on types of housing systems. And when we're deciding which trade-offs we're most comfortable with, it's our values at play. I think a lot of people do have perceptions perhaps of maybe what they think they might think is a good life for him because of what they personally might enjoy. So whether it's that you're someone who who likes the outdoors a lot and therefore you think, well, then the chicken would probably like the outdoors a lot. Or whether you're the kind of person that, like if you place value on different aspects of the hen, because the housing systems, they all have pros and cons to them. All this turns into a chicken and egg internal monologue while I'm standing in front of the egg fridge at the supermarket. Like many customers, I want to know that the bird that laid the egg was free to roam around. And Hugh Miller says the value consumers are placing on hen freedom is driving egg choice more and more. It's almost inevitable that there's a degree of anthropomorphism involved. But I think people, people have a strong view, and that's understandable, that you know, animals should be sort of free in many ways to express behaviours. And he thinks purely scientific arguments aren't all that useful when we're making values-based decisions. So 
I think no matter how much science could be applied to the issue of the welfare of, in this case, hens, laying hens in different production systems, at the end of the day, people's values will dictate that they just don't like a particular production system. They don't feel comfortable. The, the notion of it, hens in a cage or whatever, just may not sit comfortably with their own values. So it won't be about science, it won't be about even the animal's welfare, it'll be about that, that sort of values proposition that we each have. Back at Kinross Farms in Neuroa, all this talk of values and trade-offs and positive states, it's not a theory for Reuben Dare, it's a daily reality. In a free-range system, as an example, versus a cage system, you've got things like rodents, you've got birds of prey, you've got foxes, which you don't have in a cage-free or a cage system. So whatever system we use, we compromise some of that freedom of the bird. It's just trying to find that balance. And I don't think people understand that we don't just put birds in a shed en masse and produce eggs. We put birds in an environment that's you know, been scientifically proven to be the best environment for the birds, otherwise we wouldn't get the, the production numbers that we get out of our birds. He says everything about the way they farm is driven by the consumer, right down to the size of the egg and the colour of the yolk. They like the 700s, pretty much. It's, it's, it's the size, they like a nice, good-sized egg. The way that the yolk appears, you don't want your white dissipating and looking like a big splat on the pan. You want that perfect round like it is on the uh, diner menus in America. You know, that's, that's what we see in our head when we crack an egg on to fry. That bright yellow colour, it all depends on what chickens eat. You know, we base all of our um, rations on the consumer, what the consumer wants, and this is all done through testing over years and years and years. So you'll notice that any egg that you buy in the supermarket's generally got a very similar colour, both shell and yolk. And the shell colour? That's the type of chicken. Australians like brown eggs, but if you go over to Europe and America, they're all white. It'd be interesting as an experiment that if we put white eggs into the market in Australia, how they would go, because people associate brown with natural. It's just the pigment in the shell. It doesn't change anything. Farmers are following the market. That's why Kinross steadily moved to free-range systems over the years. Ruben's got a similar view to Hugh Miller. Egg buyers create the industry. Their buying decisions drive everything. Despite working mainly on free-range farms, Reuben has a pragmatic view about egg farming. He says it's not the system but the farmers that separate a good egg from a bad. Look, I think the big investment goes into your people because, you know, it's a, it's a cliche, but, you know, there's good farmers and bad farmers in every system. But it's the processes and the people that we have tending to our birds that make it a sustainable business model and frees those birds from any of those stresses, those environmental stresses that you can find on a small farm, you can find them on a big farm. And that's probably that, you know, the ability to invest in our people and in our birds and in our, in our processes that allows us to improve year on year the way we farm our birds. Biosecurity is a major issue in egg farming. 
don't touch. So we're pulling on the bright blue biosecurity suits to visit the chooks with Reuben and Brian at Kinross. So we're right now we're walking into the free range area. We've got some beautiful gum trees and there'd be quite a few thousand chooks by the looks of it under the shade of these gum trees. They look pretty happy with themselves today. It's probably about 28 degrees, blue skies, only a little breath of a breeze. So fellas, is this like good chook weather? Perfect. Yeah. Perfect chook yeah. weather. So we have natural ventilated sheds and they run on no power whatsoever in there. Just a couple of stir fans, just to mix it up. So we're now hearing a, the chook choir getting a little bit louder. They've noticed that, um, that we're here in our, our blue biohazard suits and, it, and they don't recognise us. So they're freaking out a little bit because they don't recognise us? Yeah, it's a, yeah? Bit a change. They're very colour sensitive birds. So um, we try and desensitise them in the rearing phase with, um, with music, with different colours, flap garbage bags around and things like that just to try and calm them calm them down for when they come to the laying farm so that they're, they're not shocked by a change of colour or a change of sound. It seriously sounds like they're all going, oh, what's going on here? Like they're... <laughs> they're a flock animal. So like sheep, they move in a flock and that's that pecking order piece. Your alphas will lead and the rest will follow. So they tend to move in groups, which can be handy, but Quite a lot of the time it can be painful as well because when they move in mass, they can do themselves some damage. So that's why we try and keep them calm. And There's quite an intensive um, amount of work that has to go into range management. So when our flock moves out and we come in, we've got to repair the range as much as we can. Because like you said, they're quite destructive. Birds will find a way of breaking anything. It's a day-to-day it's a -day management challenge. So there's something stirred them up. They might have seen a plane or a bird. Doesn't take much. They like this cover. That's why they're under these trees and not out in the open. Yeah. That's where you need some trees to try and guide them out. But it's all natural predatory response. You know, the chicken's a flightless bird and it, it's exposed to a lot of risk when it steps out in the environment because it hasn't got any defence mechanism except for its numbers. Or um, the canopy, I suppose, that it was that's bred from originally. It's, it's hiding underneath its canopy, that's right. Yeah. I've not been on the egg farm long but it takes no time to see the challenges in making eggs. In every environment, we compromise something. We can't be perfect all the time. Because right now, we're out here in high welfare environment, in a low density, free range environment. But these birds are exposed to the sun, they're exposed to predation, but they're allowed the ability to behave naturally and scratch and a peck and dust bathe and all the things that birds do. But in a cage environment, they can't scratch and they haven't got as much enrichment, but they're completely free from predation and disease. So it's 
that balance. They're all different. Each system has its own pros and cons. You know, the first egg you eat is probably before you're 12 months old as a boiled egg as a baby, you know, and, and it's probably the last thing you can eat when your teeth are falling out. So, you know, people, people go through eggs their whole life and it's not until we get to that sort of late teens to late 30s that we start to have an opinion on where it's coming from. And we've got the ability to seek knowledge, but most of the time we just pick the arguments that we like as opposed to going and looking at the whole supply chain, the whole system. We're never gonna be everyone's cup of tea. That's just the cold hard facts of reality. But all we can do is endeavour every day to be the best farmers that we can be and look after our birds the best we can. Thanks for listening to episode one of The Good Egg. Next time, healthy hens. Birds had to be pulled off the ground. You, you cannot leave a bird on the ground. The transmission disease was just running rife. So we can monitor absolutely everything. So we can monitor temperature consistently throughout the day, minimum and maximums. We can look at pressure. So it's negative pressure, how much airflow is being pulled through the shed over the birds. So I would say, well, gosh, health, health is extremely important. Join me as I talk to farmers about the trade-offs they make to keep their hens healthy and how they monitor health in different farming systems. All episodes are available now wherever you listen to podcasts. If someone sent you this episode, make sure you check out the others. Head to your favourite podcast app and search for The Good Egg or check out the Australian Eggs website.